This episode is brought to you by Element, spelled L-M-N-T. What is Element? Let me tell you. It's a delicious, sugar-free, electrolyte drink mix. As a coach, we are constantly trying to find the best products for our athletes to train and compete at their highest level. Element is a great alternative to other commercial recovery and performance drinks and has enough sodium, potassium, and magnesium to get you feeling and performing your best. Plus, it has zero sugar, no artificial ingredients, and is gluten-free. With a variety of delicious flavors, you are guaranteed to find one your taste buds will love. I know our athletes love the citrus salt, while my favorite is grapefruit. We keep a variety box in the office, and our athletes stop by every day on their way to practice or games to load up. At this point, they won't even touch another product, and I am replenishing our supply on a weekly basis. Without amazing products and sponsors like Element, our podcast would not be possible. Right now, when you click on our affiliate link and place your first order, Element is giving us a 150% commission. That means if you spend $100, we get $150 to keep this podcast running. The best deal you can get is to buy an insider bundle. You buy three boxes, you get one free. And if you click our affiliate link, drinkelement.com slash justinclimo, we will get a commission and you will get a free sample pack with every purchase. Last thing, Element might have the best return policy on the planet. If you don't love it, you will be instantly refunded. Let's talk about sleep for a minute. I've had a terrible time getting productive rest and sleep for the last few years. And since poor sleep can lead to all sorts of health problems, I'm constantly on the hunt for a better night's sleep. Recently, I came across a new product called Beam Dream, which has delivered the best sleep I've had in a long time. The first time I tried it, I fell asleep on the couch within a half hour and didn't wake up until the next day. Since starting my new routine with Beam, my sleep performance has improved significantly according to both my Aura Ring and Whoop Band. Yes, I use both at once because why not have more data? If you are interested in upgrading your sleep, I invite you to try Beam Dream. Today, my listeners get a special discount on Beam's Dream Powder their best-selling healthy hot cocoa for sleep with no added sugar. Now available in delicious seasonal flavors like cinnamon cacao, sea salt caramel, and white chocolate peppermint. Better sleep has never tasted better. A recent clinical study revealed that 93% of users wake up feeling more refreshed and 93% reported that Dream helped them get a more restful night's sleep. If you're looking for a way to get some rest and you have trouble sleeping, I highly recommend this product. If you want to try Beam's best-selling dream powder, take advantage of their biggest sale of the year and get up to 50% off for a limited time. When you go to shopbeam.com contacts, discount auto applied at checkout, no code is necessary. That's shopbeam.com contacts for up to 50% off. If you're a longtime listener, you might know that I've been drinking AG1 for a couple of years. If you're not a longtime listener, then know that I drink AG1 on a daily basis. When I first started drinking it daily, I could feel a real difference in my daily health. I had more energy, I felt more relaxed, I could focus better. That's because AG1 is a foundational nutritional supplement that supports your body's universal needs like gut optimization, stress management, and immune support. 
Since 2010, AG1 has led the future of foundational nutrition, continuously refining their formula to create a smarter and better way to elevate your baseline health. I recommend AG1 to all of my family and friends because it has worked so well for me. So much so that my two eldest children have become regular users of the product. My daughter who has been studying abroad recently asked us to bring her more product when we went to visit her at Thanksgiving. My other daughter who's a freshman in college regularly contacts us to make sure we send her more product. AG1 has been transformational as it has replaced all of the needless ramekins of vitamins and minerals that I used to take. If you really want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com contacts. That's drinkag1.com contacts to order your own supply and start on your journey to better health. Welcome to the Contacts Coaching Podcast, dedicated to bringing you practical ideas from coaches, sharing what they have learned throughout their career. The show is designed to serve as a digital database of mentorship from a wide network of coaches whose innovative, reflective, and diverse knowledge may offer ideas to enhance your experience. In addition to sport-specific expertise, each episode also dives into the ways in which culture, strategy, and tactics can cross from one discipline to another. I'm your host, Justin Klein. Welcome back to the Contacts Coaching Podcast. We are joined today by the California Interscholastic Federation Executive Director, Ron Nachetti. Coach, thanks for being on today. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. All right. You haven't coached in a long time, but you got into athletics and, and coached at one point. So let's get the background. How'd you get into this? And what was the the climb up the proverbial social ladder here that landed you in a role that you're at? If you could take us through the entire background so we know what we're dealing with here, Coach. All right. I'll try and do that as quickly as possible. A unique story how I got into coaching, to be very honest. I was playing baseball senior year at USF and I had an injury that ended my baseball career, broke my leg. Um, so was told by the doctor that you're not playing baseball again. So I went and got two jobs while finishing up my senior year and then had to stay in school a little bit because it was such a bad injury. I couldn't attend classes for a while. So my fifth year, I had two different jobs. One was I was working at a law firm because I was going to go to law school. And that was what I wanted to do after college. I was set. The second job was I was the assistant JV basketball coach at my former high school, which was a couple miles from USF. One every day I went to and absolutely enjoyed it. And the other one every day I went to and I was incredibly miserable. You can guess which one I enjoyed based on where I ended up. And the unique part was I was probably being paid 25 bucks an hour back in 1989, 1990, where for coaching, I got paid $1 because they had to put me on contract so I could have insurance. End of that season, the team, in fact, I still have it right. I'm looking at it right now. I've got a dollar bill on my desk signed by every student athlete that was on that team. 
best experience I had later on that summer, got offered a coaching and teaching position at the school. And that's where I went. Spent about 10 years there coaching basketball at various levels, coaching baseball at various levels before moving on to be the athletic director of the school in Sacramento, and then came from there to the CIF. And what was the process for going from a high school administrator and coach to working directly for the CIF? So I was on the SAC Joaquin section board of managers back in 2007, eight school year, and had the opportunity at that time to meet Maria Sheeta and Roger Blake. So I got introduced to them. That was my first experience meeting either one of them who were the current executive director and an associate executive director. And then at the same time, I was the assistant uh, tournament director for the state basketball championships. Mike Garrison, who's now the SAC Joaquin section commissioner, was the tournament director. Got to know them through that experience, enjoyed running the event with Mike, and just the whole idea of being involved with state championships. Found out that same year they were creating a new position as a director of championship events, which when I looked at that, I love being a high school athletic director, but I was ready for a new challenge and looked at the job and said, so I'm going to have a job that allows me to be the director of every single state championship sport that the CIF offers. Couldn't turn down an opportunity like that. And once you got to the CIF, what was the biggest eye-opening moment, two or three of how I thought it worked and what the reality of the situation is in regards to steering that ship versus a site? Sure. Number one, you you have an impact, but you just have to recognize right away that you're going to have a much less direct impact on student athletes. And I think where we all, almost everyone involved with the CIF came from the position of being a coach, an athletic director, a principal, not everyone, but most. And so they got to see every day the impact they were having on, on student athletes, where in this office, while we know there's impact, we also don't get to see the result like we used to see on the school site. So I think that's the biggest difference. The other big difference was just managing an organization, being part of an organization that is is pretty vast when you really consider it. And I never really thought of this way. And, and the way we explain it now is you look at the NCAA, if you take all the member schools in the NCAA across the entire country, division one, two, and three, I think there's roughly 1,100 member institutions. We have over 1,600 high schools in the state of California. And the NCAA, I believe, has somewhere about 450,000 student athletes. We have over 760,000 student athletes. So, so that's where I think it really comes into play about how big the organization is. And it also explains very clearly why we're set up the way we are. We absolutely have to have our 10 section commissioners who they run, each of them runs their own little, their, and some, sometimes not so little in some cases, they run their own state and, and they do a great job. And they communicate well with us and with each other, because I just don't know how you'd run a state this size without that setup. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? I was on a podcast with Mark Hunter the other day, and he's from Utah. And I was trying to articulate what and how our setup is. And I gave broad strokes, but I would love for people that aren't in our state to understand how the state of California and the Federation actually works. Can you break that down a little bit? 
Yeah, absolutely. So we're one of two federations in the country. Everyone out, every other state's what's called a state association, where all the decisions, everything's done from a central state office. New York is the other one that has a similar setup to us and having 10 sections. We're the only two. And really what it comes down to is they're semi-autonomous. The reason I say semi-autonomous is that we have a set of state bylaws. And all, the entire state has to vote on and agree to abide by those state bylaws. They can be more restrictive in some cases if they'd like. They cannot be less restrictive than our state bylaws. And I would say now more than ever, our 10 section commissioners abide by that and work hard to abide by that and work together. They call each other all the time. Hey, here's a case I saw. How'd you guys handle this one? Knowing that not everything is going to be done exactly the same way, because when you have 10 sections and 10 section commissioners, you also have 10 different people making decisions. And they all might look at a situation slightly differently. So that presents the challenge. Some people ask all the time that, why don't you become a federation? Uh, or excuse me, why don't you become an association? It's been talked about. It's been talked about several times since I've been here. But I believe our current setup best serves our students at this time, because there's some local control and access to people at the local level versus look at how many hours it takes just to drive across from one end of our state to another. No doubt. I joke all the time when I'm talking to my East Coast friends that you can be in a different state there in 30 minutes to an hour and it takes 12 hours to drive from ours tip to tip. Very different setup. Let's talk, you brought... You describing how the process and the layout and the organization works brought up a question that Hutch had asked me, which was, how do sections like Oakland and San Francisco factor into the competitive equity structure of the playoffs to make sure they're much smaller? How much representation do they get? All of that background to ask this question. Talk about the concept and application of competitive equity in playoffs and down to leagues at this point. Where did that start? What's the value, the benefit versus the old way of doing that? So it started with, with the sections uh, down in Southern California. And for quite a few years, we had a situation where the Southern California sections were using competitive equity in their playoffs, while all the Northern California sections were still based on enrollment. So you can see the issue when you get to state playoffs, um, you know, where you have schools in Northern California that are still sitting in Division three or four that are, are some of the best teams in the state of California. But given the league they were coming from, yet they would send one league would maybe send schools to Division one playoffs, two playoffs, three playoffs and four playoffs. And so you have one league dominating across four divisions. In Southern California, that wasn't happening anymore because the best schools, no matter what league you were in, ended up in the top divisions. And we worked for years to try and get Northern California on the same page. What it really took was there was a year where it was our Division Five basketball championship and Sierra Canyon was upset early on and they had a great team. I think four, at least four of their players ended up at pretty big Division One basketball places. They played, I believe, university high school in San Francisco. And I don't remember the score, but let's just say it wasn't close at all. And I think people saw, we got asked the question, how come they're in division five? Remember they they're, they have less of time, less than 250 students at a co-ed school. This is why we need something called competitive equity. And I don't believe Sierra Canyon at that point wanted to be in that division, but that's where they were placed given our current structure. So things have evolved over the years now that give us more, more of an ability that Hey, no matter what happens in your section playoffs, 
you might get beat early. If you still qualify, you're still now going to be placed where you fit competitively. Perfect system? No, by no means a perfect system. There's always going to be that issue of I'm the 16 in Division One or the one in Division Two. Not going to, you're not really going to solve that one. It's just the way it is. But I think it gets better in each and every year. And if you look at the brackets and you look at how things are turning out score-wise, points-wise, spread of contest, I think the data is pretty compelling. I just think we have to continue to refine how we do our seeding. And what's helping us is there's much more intersectional play and statewide play to get more comparisons between schools than ever before. So I think that part is helping us. Absolutely. And because there is not a lack of transparency, but there's also not an understanding by the, the general population of how these things work. How does seeding actually happen when it gets to the regional and the state level in regards to making those decisions as to who goes where? My my running uh, explanation is always like the commissioners all get in a room bring their teams, they put everybody up on the board and rank them in order, and then they just start filling the brackets. I'm sure that's a generic version, but how does it actually work? Yeah, it's, it's pretty close. We no longer bring all the 10 section commissioners into one room because of now having the ability to do things via Zoom, right? Um, but what, what our, our staff does, no matter what the sport, is they start collecting information from the sections pretty much before section playoffs even begin. But once section playoffs begin, they start getting information from the section saying, okay, we have, there's going to be 84 teams in this bracket. Your section has 22 of them. At this point in time on this day, how would you rank those 22 teams? Send us that information. We get that from all the sections and start looking at, okay, in a perfect world, if those end up being the 22 teams, we know there's going to be upsets and that's going to change. How would we slot things at that point? based on various criteria. We look at overall record, strength of schedule. We look at opponent strength of schedule. It's all listed in our handbook, what the criteria is in no particular order. But I also think where the process has really evolved a little bit is taking more of the NCA approach of um, the total body of work, if you will. You, you might have a team that says, hey, I beat you three times by 20 points during the regular season, maybe even in the playoffs or not well, it wouldn't be the playoffs, but during the regular season. And then you got me that very last time by a point in triple overtime, which team should be the higher seed there. It used to be whoever won the section championship, you're the one. That was where I think people went a little crazy about it when they saw for the first time that we didn't necessarily do that. But I do believe it's the right thing to do, but really should be about the total body of work and not necessarily because you beat someone the first week of the season versus the last week of the season, et cetera. So I think we've improved in that way. Again, there's always room to get better. But the final part of the process is the meeting with all the commissioners. Say, okay, here's how we see it. Here's how our committee sees it. What do you guys think? And then the commissioners have the ability to go through each division, each matchup, and discuss whether or not they agree or disagree. Follow-up question, and I can only speak right now to our current setup, where we don't have competitive equity in every sport. I'm assuming it's similar at the state, but I may be wrong. You can correct me on that in a second. But, like, for basketball, we still play section playoffs based on division of enrollment. And I don't know how many other sections do that. Um, at, at what point... Or can you, do you, with those section commissioners, 
say, hey, look, we all got to be on the same page here. Or is it just going to be like it is for perpetuity? I think it's, I think if you had asked me that question, even just five years ago, I would say it's probably going to be the way it is. But I think if you look at the last five years, some of the section and the movement that's taken place, take, for example, CCS football playoffs and how they do it now. I think we're moving in that direction. I think we can all know that in education, change is really slow. And I think that's something that we have to continue to put out there why we're doing what we're doing, why we believe it's a better system and bring people along. And so I think we're seeing sections, the ones in the North, some are getting there. Some are still moving people up based on prior success, where it's you have to win three championships in a row, for example. But even that section that does that has now moved to where unless our board agrees that school needs to be moved up sooner. They have the ability to do that now. So I think we're moving there. But yes, in a perfect world, everyone would do it the exact same way. And I think it would certainly help our state playoffs because you would see, I think, some more competitive games across all the divisions if everyone was doing it the same way. Yeah, no doubt. Now, do you do, are all the sports at the regional and state level competitive equity at this point? With the exception of all the team sports, we use competitive equity. I shouldn't say all the team sports. They still see, there's some that only have one division, for example. Golf only has one division. Tennis only has one division. Individual sports are just that. There is individual track and field, one division, wrestling, one division. Cross country is a team sport right now that is still based on enrollment base. Although you're looking at a change the Southern section made, which was where basically them and the central section were probably the first two to have competitive equity. Southern section just made a change and moved to competitive equity now across all sports. And so I think that might be the start of the other people looking at doing it the same way. What are your thoughts on the competitive equity practice trickling down to the league level? Meaning, I think you're aware, uh, at least at a tertiary level, that our league, we have 32 schools. We're in four divisions that get realigned every year based on competitive equity. How much of the state would you say has gone to that, is going that way with these super leagues versus the the kind of six-team setup? What's your thoughts on that trickling all the way down? I think it's a great model. I, I love the conference model, if you will. In fact, I wish that the NCAA, Pac-12, and school, other conferences on the West Coast would have looked at a similar model before blowing everything up, taking the Pac-12, the Big Sky, the West Coast, the Big West, and putting them all in one big super conference and then aligning by sport. I think that would have been a fun thing to see. But I, I went a little off topic on you there. But I love the model. I do think it's that conversation is now gaining traction. The difference that we have to remember, though, is that league competition is also set up by people who work and are at those schools and try and do what's best for their schools and their student athletes to keep them in school as far as uh, the school day. And geographic plays a part of that, where they want to play and where they want to participate. So it's not a perfect world that we can just say it'll all be done strictly by competitive equity because who knows where that might send people for league contests. But I think it's a model that more sections are, are studying. Yeah. And like you said, at the state level, it's an imperfect science because you have this criteria in competitive equity that often um, ignores the traditional approach of school size, geography, et cetera. And that doesn't always land well when you have perceived uh, equity amongst teams. It's like, why can't you just do this and this? And it's just always a, um, a second guessing approach to it. And you do the best you can and you have some misses, but for all intents and purposes, as I've said in, in our league, uh, it's really helped 
the competitiveness. It's really been what's best for kids for the most part in regards to their sports experience. It is a logistical nightmare, um, but ultimately that's what you're signing up for. Let me ask about some of, actually, before we pivot to this, let's talk football for a second. Football is generally seen as the tail that wags the dog in league play, in section play, in state play. How is that true and or false? And how is football different in such a way that it needs to have different uh, bylaws um, for managing that sport? And the reason I ask is within our own league, after six years, I think we've been maybe seven uh, as the Pacific Coast Athletic League, and we have governance and bylaws that deals with realignment with with every sport, right? Tiebreakers for every sport. And now it's like we're, we're at a place where, yeah, we're acknowledging that football is different and it, it needs its own set of um, guidance in regards to how we do realignment. Talk a little bit about that concept at the state level. Sure. I'll say football is, is different in some respects in that you play one game a week. And in most cases, obviously, you travel with the exception of some very small leagues. I know I, there's only a few that play more than once or play more than the same team uh, once in a season. But for the most part, one game a week and you travel to your oppo opposing league members every other year. So I think just by the nature of that, and there's a few other sports that might be like that, depending on the league you're in. For example, wrestling could be like that with duels. But I think just because of that, it lends itself to the ability to realign a little differently for the sport of football. And I think when other sports hear that, they immediately jump to this, that, well, that's not fair. Why is football always be the one, always is always the one to get treated differently? And I'm not advocating it's treated differently because as far as I'm concerned, the student athletes that put in the time in the sport of football are no different than the student athletes that put in the time in the sport of girls volleyball. They're both competitive, full of competitive athletes that want to go compete against the best, play against the best, and be in the best leagues. But football does allow for a different model. And what it does is it doesn't mean that your school, you may have a, a very strong football team or a very weak football team. And now all of a sudden, all of your other sports are being tied to that team. And that would remove that from the equation. And I think that's the reason why I think so many sections are looking at doing this a little differently when it comes to realigning and, and for the sport of football. Yeah, no, those are great points. As I uh, mentioned, when we have these conversations, it's you don't want to treat football differently, but football is different. And it, it doesn't mean it's better, worse, and different. It's just different. And it's got a different set of challenges. And ultimately, how you navigate that is something that we're finally at the point of just naming that it's different. Let's pivot here to some of the things that are challenges today, both at the site level, the section level, the regional level, the state level. What are some of the challenges that you're dealing with every single day that you would want to talk about a little bit and help get some understanding for fans and coaches alike? Sure. I, I think the biggest one, and, and everyone realizes this is the biggest challenge for, I, I think, most schools. There's very few schools that can escape this one is behavior of fans, including parents at our contests. And it doesn't matter the sport. We're not talking about behavior like we just said at a football game. We're talking about horrible behavior by people that are adults and should be setting the example for the kids that are playing. And so many times now we see the opposite. It's the student athletes that have to set the example of how to behave for their own parents. 
You see the examples every week at, at contests, adults being escorted out of gyms. And so I think we've done quite a bit in this area with our schools. You know, we've worked on a sportsmanship toolkit that's available to all our schools with resources from our schools on best practices for how to handle. And there's some creative ideas there, but it's, I think there's some improvement, but it's not, I don't, I can't even say we're getting better. I think we're recognizing it more and we're actually removing people from the stands. When that happens now, we have a rule that we never had before that we put in several years ago that if you're a parent that has to leave the stands, you can't come back the next game. If it happens a second time, I shouldn't just say parent, any fan. If it happens a second time, you're not coming back for the rest of the season. We just had a section actually up the ante there and make it multiple games, the first ejection, and then the second time, not the rest of the season. The other section saw that, and I think I wouldn't be surprised if we see that coming down as a statewide bylaw change. Because frankly, there's no excuse. There's no excuse for an adult to behave like that at a contest. And what's really a scary thought is what they don't realize is that at some point they're going to get to a gym and there won't be a game because no officials are going to walk through that door. Because who wants to keep doing this? Am I saying the officials are infallible? No, they make mistakes. They're human. I always love going up. When I was an athletic director, I'd go to my coach and say, you're really on the officials. But I'll tell you, what if the next game I sit behind the bench and every coaching decision I disagree with, I just start screaming at you. Or I say, you know what? You're removed for a quarter because you just are not doing a good job tonight. How would you react to that? You're human. You're going to make coaching mistakes. They're going to make officiating mistakes. And yet everyone expects high school officials to be perfect. Look at the game we just saw the other night with the 49ers and the Chiefs. Were there mistakes made by the officials? Yes. And these are the best officials in the world who make mistakes. So I just think that we have to continue to do better. And I think the biggest thing there is our principals and our athletic directors, our heads of school need to see that we're going to support them when they make these decisions, because we need them to act on the bylaws we have in place. 100%. And I think I hope everybody listens to what you just said from a coaching standpoint, because I think it's great perspective that people need to take into consideration. On a side note, they had me uh, for our radio station mic'd up in our game on Friday, and I just listened to, listened to it back yesterday, and it was hilarious. And thankfully, I wasn't on the officials because I'm not really that guy, but I did say a few things that were really quick and responsive, and it just reminded me based on what you said. So that's another good way to listen to yourself. Go ahead and put the mic on and then watch it back. Oh, absolutely. There's no question. And you have to be able to. And I think the other thing we have to remember is that our coaches sometimes forget how much power they hold over the crowd. And simply, hey, an official makes a call you don't agree with. Have that chat with the official. The officials, I think, for the most part, do a great job of working with coaches when it's the right conversation. They're, they're going to tell you what they saw. They're going to explain it. But as soon as the coaches want to go out there screaming, yelling, hands in the air, now that incites the crowd to do the same thing. Where I would love to see a time where a coach turned around to a parent or at a baseball game, you got the parent of a, of a pitcher who's on the mound and he's all over the umpire because he's not giving his, his kid a certain pitch. I'd love to see a high school coach stick his head out of the dugout and say, hey, you know what, either you're quiet or you're leaving and your son's coming off the mound. Your daughter's coming off the pitching mound. How quickly would that parent stop? Guarantee you they'd stop pretty fast. Yeah, no doubt. And I think to your point, interacting with officials is a skill. And something I got a few years ago that was actually funny, was on the mic'd up, was the, the question, hey, what did you see there? Versus telling them 
this is what happened. And it's, I asked that it's on the recording. It's what did you see there? So, got it with the body coach. I was like, all right, cool. And then came back over. He's like, I might owe you one later too. <laughs> it was like, Absolutely. I think you'll hear that a lot that, Hey, you know what? I, I might, I, I think I missed that one. I'm sorry. They're going to, they're going to miss calls. It's just the way it is. All right. Let me ask you this. This is a little bit more personal, but you and I have a, a common related human being that is an official. What are some of the stories you get from said individual that make you scratch your head? And what are some of the things that he has said in regards to, this is why I do it, even though it's miserable at times. Yeah. I think he officiates because number one, just wants to give back to the game, be part of the game and, and loves it. Cause trust me, I I've gone to watch a few games that officiates and we're talking about someone who's, if not the highest rated, probably one of the highest rated officials in the section and probably the entire Northern California area. And yet when you walk into a gym, according to the crowd, he probably misses 90% of the calls. It's just not, it's not realistic. I saw a contest where I think it was a grandparent walked onto the court to accost this official. And yet they still come back because you know what? They, they've got the, the mentality that they're doing this for the student athlete, first and foremost. They're not going to let a parent, a grandparent, fans chase them away. But he's also been doing it long enough to know that. Where my concern is for that first-time official that has the same exact thing happen to them, how are they going to react? They may not come back. And, and now we've lost someone that could have been a 20-year official and we don't even know. Yeah, no doubt. And that's the biggest thing that we see in a smaller area where the veterans are phasing out, not necessarily because of the behavior, because they've done it for so long, but due to age and their bodies breaking down or whatever. And then the new recruits who you're hoping will stay and last and be really good at what they do are just like, yo, it ain't worth it. Like, I, I don't get paid enough to listen to this nonsense. Exactly. But it's and I don't know of an official out there that is doing it for a paycheck. It's a great side job to have. One thing we do hear a lot from our officials that come from the college level is the fact that, wow, I'm getting paid to do something that I enjoy doing. Hopefully they continue to enjoy doing it. And I think it's up to all of us to make sure that happens. Yeah, for sure. All right. Let's talk about education in regards to development, professional and personal and the value of let's call it the uh, associations, both for coaches, athletic directors, et cetera. We have the state conference here for ADs. Each sport, generally they'll have a national conference that people will go to. But talk a little bit about in your years of being both a site person and now at the state level, how those networking opportunities and how those continuing ed opportunities are both beneficial and why the logistical headache sometime of getting to those is worth it. Absolutely. Our, our state athletic directors conference is the best one in the country, hands down. And every high school athletic director, assistant athletic director, <clears throat> we even try and encourage schools say, hey, who is that, who's that next person or the next people you're looking at to be an athletic director? Maybe invite them to attend the conference to see, is this something you might want to do? I think the principals of schools, and we say this publicly all the time, should be absolutely supporting any of our athletic administrators, athletic directors that want to attend the statewide conference. When you think about the benefits of it versus the cost of a plane ticket, a few nights in a hotel, and you can't even use the cost of the conference for the last few years because I think we've pretty much offset that to where it's 50 to $75 now to attend by some grants that we've given. But the value is, aside from the sessions, which you're going to learn, I think, a lot from the sessions, but I know when I was an athletic director, 
the most valuable part of that conference for me was the time between the sessions, hanging out in the vendor area, meeting ADs from other parts of the state, and simply just picking their brain on how do you handle this situation? What do you do here? We'd share ideas. We'd share documents, how we would handle different things. And also just realizing that no one knows this job except for those other athletic directors, just having those resources to talk through things when you're away from the conference. And then this year, what I really like, something that the CSADA is doing differently, which I think was a great idea, is they're offering a track of four workshops for district administrators and school side administrators, principals to attend the conference. I hope every principal, every school district sends someone because simply, I think if they go and see what this conference is all about, they're going to realize that this is a working conference. People enjoy each other's company, but the conference is a working conference and there's a lot of great information. Yeah. And I would say <laughs> I, I went to the national conference for the first time this year, uh, met Hutch, in theory, going to be on a teaching faculty next year. And it was a lot for me to go just because you never want to stop what you're doing. And Jean was on me forever to go. And ultimately, she's right, like in most things. So I think ultimately, those of you that are wondering, hey, is this worth my time? It definitely is. And the more, let's call it associations you can be part of, the greater your support system when you run into these things that you don't know what to do with. Yeah. Let me ask this, and you may not have an answer, but we'll run it out there anyway. What's something that in your time both as the associate director and or the uh, executive director where something has percolated up from the section level that has made its way into the state bylaws in a positive change for our student athletes. Do you have any examples of those and discussing how change can come about since we were talking about that a little bit before we got on? Yeah, absolutely. I think the biggest thing, and it's easy to say, but I think our schools and our people in our schools need to see examples of it because we say all the time that we're a grassroots organization, that our bylaws are voted. I don't have a vote at our federated council. None of my staff has a vote at federated council. Our bylaws are, are made and enacted by our 1,624 member schools. And then through our section, through their leagues, <clears throat> through the sections, and then through the state. The best two examples I give you are the two most recent ones of adding two sports for girls. And there's a reason why both sports girls beach volleyball and girls flag football were added for girls. We have 100,000 fewer sports participation opportunities for girls than we do for boys in the state of California. And that's not right. And I, do I realize that 90 some odd thousand of that is because of the sport of football and that we have over 90,000 boys playing football with some girls playing football? Sure. But that doesn't give us license to say that we don't try and even the participation opportunities for both beach volleyball and flag football. Both of those initiatives started with one coach in at one school in one league in the state of California. They ran it through their league. They had an idea to start a sport. They brought it, they got it approved by their league, brought it to their section, got it approved by their section, brought it to the state and got it approved by the state. That's the way our organization is supposed to work. And when things are supported that way through our membership, they usually pass overwhelmingly, which both did. So I'm going to ask this follow-up because I'm curious and I've gotten a variety of different answers, but never from the horse's mouth. Why did we choose to put flag football in the fall where there's already six other female sports and not in the spring where there's only four? 
So I think we looked at what other states were doing and where they had success. Most put it in the fall. <clears throat> Nevada put it in the winter, but primarily because the only schools at the time playing in Nevada were around Vegas, which they could put it in the winter, <clears throat> given the climate. So in conversations with our 10 sections, we originally had it placed in the spring. But if you look at the number of student athletes, forget the number of sports. If you look at just the number of student athletes, there are more girls playing sports in spring sports than there are in fall sports. So participation number wise, it fit. I think that's where our sections landed on is let's look at this and say also, we also didn't know at the time where the student athletes were going to come from. I think in other states, we were hearing a lot that they were coming from the sport, a lot from the sport of track and field, which is in the spring. So for those varying reasons, we said, let's start in the fall. And I think I get the consternation about space, usage of fields, et cetera. No matter what sport we were, what season we put it in, we were going to see those things. So I think it was based on success that other states had. And knowing that where we put it didn't mean that's where it had to live forever, but let, let's try it and see what works out. And I think it's been, it received incredibly well. We had just in the first year, well over 400 schools participate and wouldn't be surprised if that number almost doubles our second year. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised either. And I think that the explanation makes sense, especially when you look at it from the number of athletes participating. And obviously, I was going to say, when you said there's more athletes that participate in the spring, I was going to say due to track and field. Uh, but that being said, why are there still some sections that offer – um What's the right way, way to say this? Sports at different times than, in theory, you would like to for state championships, like water polo, where one section has the other gender playing at a completely different time, or fall soccer in some sections. Talk a little bit about that and what's being done to try to bring them together. Sure. So take water polo, Southern California. The sections in Southern California have always been split, boys in the fall, girls in the winter. And then the Northern California sections, including the central section, <clears throat> have always both in the same season. I think we showed that they can all be done. They can both be done in the same season because it happened during COVID. I'm not saying that's the perfect example to go by, but frankly, if there's always conversation about this, at some point in time, I think we're going to see a section propose, <clears throat> excuse me, that we move them and or that we move and have them both in the same season of sport. That's what we need to happen. I think it needs to come from one of our sections and propose that and then let everyone make the arguments for and against and bring it to a vote of the entire state. Because that's the only way we're going to have a state championship in that sport, because we're not going to do a state championship for the boys and not have it for the girls simply because they play in different seasons. So I think that's first and foremost. Some other sports, what is there are just some geographic issues that some sections still allow some of their teams to play soccer in the fall or spring because they physically can't do it based on their location, snow, whatever might be happening. <clears throat> so they offer a championship in all three seasons of sport. I think there's some sections that don't like that it's in the winter based on the climate, where others, it's perfectly fine to do it in the winter based on the climate. That's the challenges of California, is that we have, just look at all the different climates we have across our state, whether we're talking about winter weather, heat, air quality, et cetera. So that's definitely one of the bigger challenges. Yeah, for sure. And that makes perfect sense. And as the theme has been, changes come from the league and the section level. If there are things that 
theoretically don't make sense that you want to see change, that's where these, I don't know, initiatives can come from. So keep that in mind, those of you that are listening. All right, let's wrap up with this, Coach, since I know you got to get back to your day. What is something you've most recently changed your mind on in regards to, I used to be pretty dug in over here, and after reflection and consideration, I'm now over here waving this flag. Wow, that's a great question. I think I'll take something internal to our office. A lot of us have been doing this a long time. And I think something that our schools are looking at, our athletic departments are looking at, is realizing that there are many different mindsets that come into an office now. Whether it's an athletic department at your school or an office like the CIF, And I think we have to all, those of us that have been doing this for 30 plus years, have to realize that our way is not always the best way. We can make our arguments, we can try and stay set in our ways, but I think we have to be open to even the youngest of people who work in our communities, in our office, at our schools, on our coaching staffs, for how there are different ways to do things and to attack issues. Because I think there's a lot of great ideas out there. And I think for me, it's just, reminding myself that you don't ever stop learning. And so I, I'm learning more from some of our staff. I'm le- I learned, I, I met with this at the national conference with some of the ADs that have been doing this less than five years and came away thinking, wow, we're in really good shape because they have a different way of looking at things that I think can help all of us. Yeah. And I think that's great perspective as we navigate our world. And I find myself in that conversation very often when I'm talking to students. It's, yo, I've been doing this for 25 years. I've seen this movie. Here's the reality. Here's what's being sold. Find your truth within. But sometimes we're just navigating those that are younger and newer to the profession to figure out what they're seeing is a great way to help push your own growth along the journey. I love that. You got anything else to add here before we sign off? No, I think you've you've covered it. I, I love the questions. I think there are some great questions there that I don't typically get. Enjoyed this and happy to come back anytime. All right, Coach. You have a great day. Thanks for being on. What are the the socials that people can follow to stay up to date with the CIF news? I got we're on pretty much everything now. I never I try never to say Facebook first for obvious reasons. <laughs> uh, but obviously our Twitter handle at CIF State, Instagram. Heck, I think we even have a TikTok thing now. I don't know. (laughs) Important. We've got one as well. All right. I'll see you shortly. All right. LMNT. What is Element? It's a delicious sugar-free electrolyte drink mix. As a coach, we are constantly trying to find the best products for our athletes to train and compete at their highest level. Element is a great alternative to other commercial recovery and performance drinks and has enough sodium, potassium, and magnesium to get you feeling and performing your best. Plus, it has zero sugar, no artificial ingredients, and is gluten-free. With eight delicious flavors, you're guaranteed to find one your taste buds will love. I know our athletes love the citrus salt. We keep a variety box in the office, and our athletes stop by every day on their way to practice and games to load up. At this point, they won't even touch another electrolyte product. Without amazing products and sponsors like Element, our podcast would not be possible. Right now, when you click on our affiliate link and place your first Element order, Element will give us 100% commission. Last thing, Element might have the best return policy on the planet. If you don't love it, you'll be instantly refunded.